Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Let us proclaim it very loud with all of our heart and with all of our mind and soul, Lord, that you are the Lord and we stand here by grace alone. And we just thank you for this wonderful, amazing grace that you've given us as your children. And Lord, may we now share that freely with others. As we have received, let us give to others. And Lord, I pray that you just join with us this morning, bless our time together, and may you be glorified in all that is done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to Mark chapter 7 as we continue from last week where we looked at all worship is not created equal. We're going to look this week as Jesus continues in this parable and worship begins in the heart in our study of Mark. We are in chapter 7, 14 through 23, if you have your Bibles. The Pharisees, as a review, are seeking to undermine Jesus by accusing His disciples of not following tradition and washing their hands before eating. It's not a matter of hygiene. It's not a matter of good eating etiquette, but uncleanness of ceremonial law. And in Jesus' normal reaction to this type of criticism, Jesus begins to rebuke the Pharisees with an accusation of his own by declaring that God rejects their worship because they only give lip service to their worship. Jesus quoted from Isaiah to point out that they follow in the foolishness of their forefathers with false worship. They do so in three ways. One, they take the traditions of men and they render them as equal to the commands of God. Then they eventually replace the commands of God with just their traditions. And then eventually they reject scripture in total and regulate men by their tradition. And I gave you an example how we did that last week, and as a matter of redundancy, and maybe for those of you who weren't here, is I can share with you, we do the same thing today. Let's take a command of God, one that all of us know. We may say, uh, let not covet your neighbor's wife, or don't commit adultery. So there is a principle, a teaching of God that's very important. And so what they would do is the Pharisees and the rabbis, they would, like you and I do, is they then create lines in the sand to prevent people from doing those very things. Now, there's nothing wrong with those types of things. You know, we do that with our children. We don't want our children to touch a stove, so we don't even allow them near it, right? Don't get too close to the stove. Well, they would do the same thing, and they would create little safeguards around So something like this case, and I'll do it more in a modern way in which we do it today, is if we say, well, we don't want to covet another's neighbors, we don't want to commit adultery, then we need to do things to prevent ourselves from getting too close or being tempted. So let's say, you know what, we better not go to movies because movies, you know, sometimes they have nudity, uh, they're R-rated, so we just won't go to R-rated movies, and obviously we won't go to X-rated movies. Uh, we just won't do any of those things. So, okay, so there's a safeguard. Maybe a good safeguard, but it's one that people want. But then the thing is, wait a second. If people see me going into a movie, they may not know that I'm actually going to see the Disney. They may think that I may be going to the R. So I better not just go to movies at all. Okay, so a safeguard is I do not go to movies, okay? 
Oh, and by the way, ooh, TV, man, it's getting bad. So, you know what, let's put that over here. We better just not watch TV. Oh, let's not go to the beach, uh, you know, how the girls are dressed. All right, so that's a safeguard. Okay, so to prevent myself from breaking any of God's commands, I will not do any of these things. Now, again, are any of those things wrong if someone wants to do them? No. If that's your personal way in which you keep yourself pure, not a problem. But here's what the Pharisees and what we've done today. We now take those safeguards, those things in which we're trying to protect ourselves, and we remove them from the scriptural commands. And now we begin to preach and teach, don't go to movies, don't go to the beach, and don't watch TV. It's wrong. Have you ever been in a sermon where that's the sermon points? I surely have. You know, don't, women don't wear pants. Guys don't grow your hair. All things which once were good safeguards, but now have become over Scripture and have taken the place of Scripture. Now, they may or may not talk about the principle, but typically what becomes the most popular thing or the thing that's in mind is do not do these things. Safeguards now have become commands of God. That's what tradition was doing. Over time, people forgot the commands, and then it became all they could remember was these things. Now, if that's not enough, what you do now is now you've taken these safeguards, you now have made them commands of God, but then what you do is what they were doing is saying they would only speak about the commands, and now you would judge someone whether or not they followed those safeguards. So in other words, oh, you went to a movie? I saw you going into the movie theater. You must not be spiritual. You are unclean. There's something wrong. You cannot be a deacon if you went to the beach on Sunday. There's just no way. Now, we're laughing, but we've all heard this and done this. We ourselves have done this. We've done this in our parenting. We've done this at work, and we've done this in our religion. So that's what the Pharisees were doing. They rendered as traditions equal with Scripture. Then they replaced them and made them as Scripture, and then eventually they made them as the way in which they would regulate your life. And so you and I have found ourselves doing it the same way. Their traditions, though, even though they might have started out good, wound up driving people away from God. What are the commands and principles of God to do? They're supposed to drive us. They reveal us who God is, and we're to pursue that. God is holy. His commands show us, and we're to pursue that. However, traditions begin to drive people away from God. And that was the main point of the Scripture last week, is that in Jesus' words, worship cannot be separated from Scripture. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. But yet we're guilty of doing the very same thing is we take things and move it from Scripture, and we call that worship. God, though, has prescribed in His Word how we are to worship. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes, should have known this. Deuteronomy chapter 12 tells us everything, this is a quote from God, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do, you shall not add to it, nor take away from it. What have they done? They've done that very thing. They were not careful. And the traditions of the rabbis and religious leaders had come to the point where they were taking and adding to it. And these were the things that men were judged whether or not that they were spiritual or not. 
and it was leading people, driving people away from God. The same thing happens today when we mimic that type of behavior. Through this encounter with the Pharisees, Jesus points out that he is the true interpreter of God's word, not the religious leaders, not the scribes. They had just rendered it completely useless. It had been forgotten. In Mark chapter 1, Mark notes that the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Apostle Paul points out in his gospel that Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is the one who reveals God. As it says in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus, like he does in the Sermon on the Mount, corrects their teaching and application of the Word of God. And so we ended last week by asking ourselves three questions. How do you and I teach the doctrines of men? In what ways have we replaced God's commands with our own opinions, preferences, and traditions? We also wanted to ask ourselves, is our worship accepted by God? Is what he sees here this morning, was it acceptable to him or was it also in vain? And what are some ways that our worship is in vain corporately and personally? However, now as we go on in today's passage, Mark records the aftermath of this encounter with the scribes as Jesus continues to teach the crowd and disciples and informs them what truly causes our worship to be rejected and what causes it to be accepted. So let's pray. Father, we ask for your wisdom. Father, I am just as guilty of what the Pharisees do and the scribes do, each and every one of us. So let us be careful with your word. Let us hold it as true. And Lord, help us know the difference between your words, your commands, your principles, and then our opinions, our safeguards, our traditions. And Father, we do not want our worship to be rejected, but we want it to be accepted, pleasing in your sight. And I pray that you just give us wisdom, discernment, as your Holy Spirit works within us through my preaching and through our listening. And Father, most importantly, in our responding to your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to give you a couple observations and then we'll kind of get a little bit further into it. So in verses 14 and 17, we're going to see that Jesus is going to bring the crowd together to teach them the truth. Look at verse 14. And it will be on the screen if you don't have your Bible, but also Mark chapter 7, look at verse 14. And Jesus called the people to him again. And he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the thing that comes out of a person are what defile him. Jesus here is gathering a crowd together in order to correct the teaching of the scribes. He has this encounter last week that we saw with the Pharisees. They leave. Jesus now brings these people and says, I need to talk to you now. This is important. He cannot allow the false teaching of the scribes to continue to dictate the worship of the people. Their traditions had replaced God's commands to the point that they didn't even understand the true source of worship. Their worship had become full of lip service and external obediences to ritual washings, ceremonies, and other observances. They had come to believe that defilement comes from the touch of, of a Gentile, of a corpse, or something else that was considered unclean. However, Jesus here is going to teach them that defilement is not something that comes from the outside, but it's already from within a person. 
Jesus is not talking here about some bacteria or some other type of physical disease. So we're not making medical decisions here or upending all medical discoveries here. But he's talking about a spiritual disease, those things that make us right or pleasing or acceptable to God. Verses 17, we see now the disciples, after speaking with the crowd, the disciples themselves still struggle to understand what Jesus is teaching. Look at verse 17. And when he had entered the house and he left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them in verse 18, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? And since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled, And then here's an editorial note here. Thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus' disciples then go to a house. It doesn't tell us whose house it is. It could have been Peter's again, or it could have been some other home. But they go into a house for some private teaching and instruction. And the disciples still don't get it. This seems to be an ever-occurring theme with the disciples. The parable is still just outside the reach of their understanding. Though privileged to have private teaching and instruction from Jesus, the disciples still come with a hard heart and still struggle to understand the parable. What Jesus now is going to do is going to sit down with, with these 12 and try to bring them to help them understand. He's telling them that it's not the touch of a Gentile that makes one unclean, nor is it the food. Though they received from Moses very strict dietary regulations to set them apart from other nations, it did not make one truly right with God. We saw that in our scripture reading. It's not the things that they had to continually do them. It never made them right with God. See, Jesus explaining here that defilement, the thing that makes someone unclean and apart from God, is not from the outside but from in. It's the heart. Now, in the Western world, when we think of the heart, it refers to our human emotions. You know, I love you with all my heart. And, you know, things of that nature. But first and more human emotions. But theologian Walter Wessel writes to us and tells us that to the Jews, especially the Jews of that time, the heart is the center of a person's human personality. And that determines man's actions and inactions. And so, in other words, it's the heart. It's not just our human emotions, but it's that thing that's our personality. It's who we are. It's our very nature that leads us to our attitudes and to our actions. It says it's those things. And that's what we know from Scripture. Scripture tells us that what sin is. There's a sin nature and a sin attitude and a sin that leads to sinful actions. Mark here inserts an interesting editorial comment when he says that by this Jesus declared all foods clean probably to give approval and to help to encourage both the Roman and the Jewish Christians there in Rome that they're freed from the Jewish dietary laws. This points to the testimony of Peter. And take your Bibles if you would. I think this is interesting. Turn to Acts chapter 10. For you and I must ask, well, what does this mean to us? What about the ceremonial laws? If it was good for the Jews, why do we not have to follow that? And you see that today with many people as they talk about especially in homosexual marriage and things of that nature. Well, why is it that if that's in Leviticus, why is it okay now to eat shellfish or, or bacon or something of that nature? Well, we have to understand how the Scripture, we have to understand the law. And in Acts chapter 10, we see that Jesus is pointing out that the ceremonial law, the dietary laws, are not something that he holds us to any longer. Peter, when he went up to the household in Acts chapter 10, verse 9, Peter went up to the household where he was staying about the sixth hour to pray. 
And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In verse 12 it says, In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him that said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I had never eaten anything that is uncommon or unclean. And the voice came to him in verse 15 a second time and said, What God has made clean do not call common. Now, I think this is an interesting editorial comment because if we believe Mark is writing to the Roman church and that Peter was his source of most of the, what he has here, then it would make sense that Mark here is trying to affirm the testimony of Peter that these laws were no longer necessary either for the Romans or for the Jewish Christians. So he makes that statement where thus he declares all foods clean because it's not the foods that ever made any Jew right but it was in the temporary way in which God set them apart. For when we look at verse 20, Jesus now, the third observation, is Jesus points out that the evil, the thing that makes us unclean, actually comes from within a person. You and I know this. Look at verse 20. And Jesus said to them, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, now he's being specific. Where is it coming? It's from the heart. From out of the heart of the man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Look at verse 23. All these evil things come from within. and That's what defiles a person. You see, the motivation of sin is in the heart. It's not in those things out. It's not the movies. It's not the TV. It's not the beaches. It's not the other things that make us sin. Sin is within. It points out the depravity of the heart. We can come up with all sorts of safeguards and barriers and protections to keep sin out. But unfortunately, we wall it up within ourselves. Give you an example. I think of Christian schools and Christian youth groups, churches, Christian families, and all such things. I, you know, we, we, I went to a Christian school, and what we would do is, is we would do all sorts of things and say, well, we want to protect our kids from sin. And so we create all these barriers and protections. And some of you know what I'm talking about. And we say, well, this will keep our children safe. We won't let them go to movies. We'll make sure they cut their hair this way. We'll show them how to act like a Christian, talk like a Christian, walk like a Christian, and do all the things that a Christian would do. Unfortunately, what happens is you teach unregenerated children how to pretend and act like a Christian. We can fool anybody. We get saved two, three times and baptized just as much. Why? Because that's what you did. And so I can just speak with you of many of my schoolmates who are no longer following Christ but just have a hardened heart. See, here's the problem. Those things are good. Christian schools, Christian families, Christian youth groups, all those things are great and dandy and needful in this world. But let me tell you, you cannot put your hope in those things. Churches who create great megaplexes and create their own entertainment and their own bowling alleys and all these things so they don't have to go to the world. All those things will not help. I don't mean to pick on this one family, but most of us know of a family with many children. And one of their oldest children has now found himself within sin. 
And people are wondering, how could this happen? They protected their kids. They didn't send them to a school. They did all these things. How in the world did they ever fall in sin? The problem is, with every brick and every mortar that you wall your family in to protect them from sin, the problem is, is that it's already been infected from the inside. It's like if one of us got sick, and so the, the world comes and says, well, someone has a deadly Ebola virus. What are they going to do? They're going to quarantine, right, the whole church, so it doesn't get out. But the problem is, it's already in. What hope is there for us? It's the same way. What hope do you have? If it's in a church, if it's in something other than God, it is lost. You have no hope. Your works, all those things are hopeless. That's why he says, in vain you worship me. Again, those things are good and can be beneficial. But yet your hope cannot be in those things. Amen? All those things are good, but yet let me share with you, it doesn't matter because it's still within. You hear about people that are always trying to run from themselves, but yet every morning they look in the mirror and there they are. You can run from a problem, but the problem is within. We need to understand that. Why is this important? What does this mean for you and I? Jesus is telling us that all the barriers and all the things, those things may be good and dandy, but the problem is in our heart. You see, that's why you and I can't stand before God because in our sin is our moral failure to conform to God's law in our nature, in our attitudes, in our actions. This is important, what Jesus is teaching, because you and I were created to worship God and to hold Him up as the supreme object of our admiration. Luke in his gospel account quotes Jesus saying to the woman at the well, that the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. For God is spirit and, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Yet you and I cannot do so. Here's the sad news. This is the tragic news. Is that you and I cannot do so if our worship is just external Filled with dead works. And that's what they were doing. All good and wonderful things, but yet they were dead on arrival. You see, Psalms 51, would you take your Bibles and turn to that, please? This is important. We looked at this last week, and it's good enough to look again. Psalms 51. Let us stand on what David says. In Psalms 51, after his sin with Bathsheba, he recognizes that the sin is within himself. He says in Psalms 51, verse 16, For you, Father, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. But look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. There, my friends, is the worship that's accepted. That is the worship that's not in vain. Let me share with you why you and I, though, cannot do that. You and I have a problem. And that problem is you and I have an old, decrepit heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
Paul writes, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to all of us. He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor sinners will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and some are such of you, for we are all guilty. James tells us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by movies. When he's lured and enticed by his neighbor, right? When he's lured and enticed by TV. Is that what it says? No. He's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In 1 John, he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And he continues to write in next, The world is passing away along with the desires. But he leaves hope. For he says, For whoever does the will of God will abide forever. You see, we have a problem with our old heart. It keeps us from true worship. The Bible says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the eyes of those that they may not spiritually discern. That's why the Pharisees and the scribes could not understand what Jesus was teaching. This is many times why the crowds went away, scratched their heads. It's why many disciples walked away from Jesus because they could not believe what he was saying and understand it. You and I, though, try to change, to modify and control behavior. That's what you and I do. So there's an old heart that's full with all of these evil and wicked things. And so what do we do? We try to modify it, change it, or control it. We do it through parenting. We do it through education, employment, political, social, and cultural means. We do all sorts of things to control and modify people's behavior. We can't have stealing and theft and adultery and all these things. We try bribery. We try punishment. We try praise. We try therapy and other tools to manipulate and change attitudes and actions, but the problem is it's in our very nature. And as Scripture says, the leopard cannot change his spots. Just take a look at the problem of recidivism. You might have heard that word. It means those who go into prison or to jail, they get released, but yet after a time, very quickly, they're back in it. Why? Because our penal system is such that we put people in it, we punish them, but it doesn't tackle the very problem of the heart. Let me tell you, as a parent, I've shared this with you. For those of you who have children, you need to get to the heart of your children, not just their behavior. It's not about sending them to the corner to get their punishment. It's not about just getting them to stop crying, but it's getting them a changed heart to turn their face towards you and in repentance and coming to you. I hope that makes sense. That's what true discipline is. And in all these experiments, and now the the government and politics is in there, in the place where, you know what, we can't trust people to raise their own children, so we as the government now need to do this. And we'll do it through education. We'll do it through other types of social means. They can't handle their own money, so we're going to change and modify their behavior because people won't save. They're just going to spend, so we'll just take more of their money and we're going to redistribute it here and there. I'm not trying to make a political statement. What I'm saying is the whole purpose is to change and modify and manipulate behavior. You want someone to stop doing something? What does the government do? You tax it. Why? Eventually, there's going to be a breaking point. 
You want to stop your kid from doing something? You keep disciplining until you break them. But the problem is that only modifies their behavior. It doesn't change their heart. They'll either go back to the default position or they find new ways of doing it. This is shown by the Mosaic Law, which was perfect, but still the Bible tells us that it was not able to reconcile man to God for eternity. The Old Testament pointed to the importance of not only perfect obedience externally, but to the heart. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. The disciples knew these laws by heart, but still they didn't get it. The religious leaders still did not get it. Exodus chapter 20, it's where we find the Ten Commandments. It's where you and I would find the basis, the foundation of not only most of all of our laws, but also obviously how God has enabled us to come together or ordered us to come together. Look at Exodus 20. Jesus says, I'm the Lord your God. He gives us a motivation. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Because I have done that, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. In verse 4, you shall make, not make yourself a carved image of any likeness. And number verse 5, you shall not bow down them or serve them. In verse 7, you shall not, not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In verse 8, because I've created the world in seven days, you will remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, and you shall do no work. In verse 9, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to your Lord. In verse 12, he goes on to say, now, honor your father and mother. We looked at how they had taken some things and misused that. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. All of these commands point to external ways to obey God. And they were for the Jews, they were for the children of Israel, and as we know, Jesus gave each and every one of those to us. These are the laws which not only God has commanded and says, this is how your life must be ordered in order to be perfect and be like me, but it's also been the foundation of many countries and nations and even the concept of what is justice. But the Bible says you must be perfect as your Father is perfect. But all these commands point to external ways to obey God. But the next one is much different. Because God knows that it's not enough just to get you to honor your father and mother. Because you can do that, right? You and I could do most of these things and get away with it, or at least pretend that we're doing them. But you're not going to get past verse 17. Because this is where we find ourselves. Look at verse 17. You should not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. He goes to the external... But then God ends with the internal. See, coveting is not something you do from the outside. It's something you do from the inside. And is that not what God says, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? I say to you, if anyone, the Bible tells you, you've heard it said, if someone, uh, not to commit adultery, but I say if you look on the heart or look at a woman to lust after, you've committed sin. See, it was always there, but it's like they've forgotten verse 17 the last commandment, for that speaks to the heart. And in essence, that's where everything else comes from. It becomes from coveting a desire to have our own way. That becomes the base of all of our sins. So you and I cannot do this. Our old heart could not obey these commands perfectly. For even if we could prevent ourselves from doing these externally, our heart still betrays us. So there's only one solution. 
And that's a new heart. You and I need a new heart. I love 1 Corinthians 6.11, where he says all these things. If you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he ends with the word, but. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by His Spirit. Amen? You see, something now special is happening. You and I need to replace our old heart with a new one. That's what He tells us in Jeremiah. The promise was, is that there will be a new covenant where I will take your heart out and give you a new heart. And I will write my law within your heart and not just on stones of tablet. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that Jesus has accomplished this, is that he's already in the process of exchanging people's hearts. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. The answer for you and I to have our worship accepted, to have a worship that is not in vain, is to become clean, to clean that new heart. And the only way to do that is not to look to tradition, not to look to safeguards and rules and regulations, not to look to external things that you and I can do, but is to look towards Christ. You and I no longer need the ceremonial law to make us clean or unclean. John MacArthur writes that the ceremonial law constituted that a person is ritually unfit. And they couldn't come in to worship God because of the external unfitness until they had followed whatever cleansing rule or ritual that was necessary to prepare them to physically come to their presence of God. But Hebrews 8.5 says that all of the stuff in the Old Testament is just an example and a shadow of heavenly things. In Hebrews 9, it says that they were figures for the time then present, and that foods and drinks and various washings and the fleshly ordinances were opposed till the time of the Reformation. Now, I'm not speaking about the time of Luther and Calvin, but the time of Reformation was the time of the arrival of the Messiah and the New Covenant. That was the picture book time. Now, though, as an adult, it's a graduation from the elementary school to now graduating school. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, he writes, they were a shadow and not the very image. They were always tended as a shadow, a sketch, a picture. It's why in Hebrews chapter 10 that we read up earlier, the lesson is summed up. Let us draw near with a true heart, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, let us go to the spiritual cleansing that God was after. That's why Hebrews 6 tells us, let us leave the elementary teaching of the doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. It's not talking about Christianity. It's talking about Judaism. It's talking about the rituals that we try to make ourselves clean outside from the Word of God. In fact, in Hebrews, it's written that Jews who are sitting on the fence and won't abandon the ceremonialism, he's saying you're laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and about instructions, about washings. He says we need to leave that aside. Leave those pictures, leave those symbols. They were nothing more. And let me share with you, all of these things that we have, they're just pictures and symbols, and many times crutches to prevent us from really doing what God has called us to do. Because those things may prevent you from breaking in the external way God's law, but your heart is evil all the time. And it goes through those barriers as a hot knife through butter. In our scripture reading, in Hebrews it says, 
You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. He said, Behold, I have come to do your will. And he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we would have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so let me share with you, it's not about you trying to change your heart, to modify your heart, and to change your behavior. It's about Christ coming in and giving you a new heart. One that can worship fully and see God, enables us to see and taste that God is good. See, Jesus is the one who cleanses. And He's the one that makes our hearts acceptable to God. And He's the one that makes us and enables us to worship. For He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians tells us and gives us example. When he says, husband, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. And here's, that's where you and I, we are the church. God is now, for those that have repented of dead works and trusting, he is now preparing our hearts to bring us to God as his bride. First John encourages, we walk in the light, as he in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We're not going to be perfect. We still will fail even in our external works of obedience. But in the end, God's not going to judge us so much by our works, but by our hearts. And he accepts the repentance and the cleansing of his people. The religious leader's mistake was, as Dustin said, was their theology of sin. The Pharisees were concerned about the external, what to do or what not to do. Whereas Jesus teaches us that we need to be concerned with the internal, why you do or don't do. It's not about the hands, it's not about the feet, it's about the heart. And you and I need a heart transplant. And I pray today that you've had that. If not, would that be your prayer this morning? Father, come and give me a new heart. Find my worship acceptable. How do you and I fall into this trap? We do it by looking, no touching. We do it by, well, I have Christian liberty to do this or do that. We find ourselves making these little ways to just give lip service. But as Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount, lusting, coveting, jealousy, anger in the heart is sin. You can refrain from all the externals, but still find yourself guilty in the heart. There's several things. I've said a lot this morning. I know I said them quickly, but I pray the Spirit will just take this week and just take this and let it permeate your heart. So I want you to consider what God has been saying this morning because it's important. You and I want our worship to be acceptable. So there's several things that you and I should take away from this this morning. The first is you and I should not fall into the trap of the religious leaders in believing that our external obedience that is separated from both from a reliance on Scripture and a heart cleansed by God is true worship. We must repent from dead works and turn and trust that we were made right with God through the works of Christ and that He gives us a new heart for obedience that leads to true worship. Do not fall in the trap of making your safeguards, your traditions, the things that God says we should do. Religion is man's attempt to justify himself to God by his behavior, while worship, and this is important, while worship is man's response from the heart 
to God's goodness. But such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. That's what causes worship to be acceptable. Do you see yourself as that? Or are you still trying to justify yourself? Look at me. Look what I've done. Look at how many good works I've done. Look at how I serve other people without a heart that loves God. It's worthless. It's in vain. Even your singing and performing and being here this morning, if you're just here out of obligation, out of duty, it falls on deaf ears. Let it not be so. John Piper writes that worship is an end in itself. Worship should never be pursued as a means to achieving something other than worship. And for the Pharisees, they pursued worship as a means of pride and self-sufficiency. Worship is never a step on our way up to any other experience. It's not a door through which we pass to get anywhere. It is the end point. It is the goal. It is why you and I have been created. Let me give you secondly. You and I are not to fall into the trap of judging other people's spiritual health through external methods and replacing God's command with traditions, preferences, and opinions. For I find many times we've hardened our hearts against our brothers and sisters in asking them or demanding that they worship in the same way that you and I. We should never do so. For when we do, we will drive people away from God rather than drawing them in, whether it's within our body or whether it's outside. And let me end by saying this. Maybe you've been hurt by these types of things, by those who judge you by their own spiritual traditions, their own spiritual preferences and opinions. You're now seeing that what they taught were not truly the commands of God. I remember that time as I grew older and started to read Scripture for myself, all of a sudden I see these things and I'm like, wait a second. They taught me all these things, but here's the principle of God. I've left that. And I wondered why my heart was still guilty, why my conscience was always bothered. But when I found the Word of God and found out what His principle was, wow, what a treasure. But yet I can still hear the voices. And today, and I shared with you last week, how I still struggle with that myself. And I use the example of Dustin. I still find myself doing it. I find myself doing it today, this morning. The people we've hurt, the times we've been hurt because we did not measure up. If you've done that, if that's your life, and I think there's many of you here, then it's time to forgive. Let's forgive those, but also let's restore the principles of God. Learn them, grasp them, hold on, and then ask God to cleanse our heart and enable us to follow His commands. For without Him, we can never do any of it. For He says, you must be perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect. And we fail, do we not? So when we pray and thank God for the one who comes and not only gives us a new heart, but cleanses us and makes us free, that we may worship Him with all of our heart, with all our soul, with all my mind. I'm just going to ask you for a moment just to bow your head and close your eyes. Just like for you to just pause, to consider, to pray and to respond. Father, what are you calling me to do? Maybe you found yourself guilty of judging 
and leading a life that is more about externals, then it's time to repent of that. It's time to embrace the principles, the commands of God. Maybe it's time to ask Christ to come and would you give me a new heart? You realize that you're not a Christ follower yet. You've recognized that dead works will never get you anywhere and that your worship is in vain. Would you pray this morning? There's no, there's no special prayer. There's no incantation. It's just, Christ, I want to follow you. Give me a new heart. Enable me to love you. If you're ready to cry that out, the Holy Spirit has already been working. You just need to respond to it. And maybe you're here and you've been hurt by others who have done these very things to you. It's time to forgive. It's time to love. And it's time to share the gospel. That Christ is in the business of replacing hearts. Father, we thank you for your goodness. I know I needed these last two messages. For Lord, I've lived this. I've been guilty of this. And Father, I want to just break those things. Lord, let our worship be pleasing to you. Let our worship spread to heaven. May our admiration for you just reach and never be stopped by anything that's within our heart. We know that within us is no good thing, but we thank you, Lord, for the grace that comes in which you've given us a new heart. Enable us to taste and see that you're good. Let our lives be such in which you do not use our liberty or our safeguards to hurt or harm anyone else. Lord, may you be glorified in all that we do. We pray this in the name of your precious Son, who loves us, who gave his life for us, and has given us the heart. We thank you for this. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.